Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Today we get to talk about the fun topics of revenge and loving your enemies. Who's excited? Yay! All right. So if you have your Bibles with you or you want to pull it up on your phone, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verses 38 through 48 today. This is the section of the Sermon on the Mount that uh, we call colloquially the six antitheses. These are the statements where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And we talked a couple weeks ago about how uh, it sounds like Jesus is almost correcting the Old Testament. But he's not. What he's doing is he is correcting some bad teaching and some faulty interpretations of the Old Testament that are leading people in that day and age to act in a certain way that's not really in accordance with God's kingdom, but to do so thinking that they're still right with God. Things that we've covered over the last couple of weeks like, like being angry and bitter and allowing resentment to fester in your heart towards a brother or sister like looking at someone else with lust in your heart, like contemplating divorce for silly reasons, like being untrustful. There are people who are, who are hearing teaching from, some, from rabbis, from Pharisees, other teachers of the law, and who also have bought into pop theology that's kind of floating around that says it's okay if you're bitter and angry at somebody. It's really their fault. As long as you don't murder that person, you're fine. And Jesus says, you've heard it said. You've heard the Old Testament law interpreted this way, but I tell you that is not the way it is. And I tell you something different and show you really what the law points to and how a citizen of the kingdom truly acts and thinks and how they live and how they love. And so we're going to finish up that section today with a teaching on revenge and loving your neighbor. And uh, to get us started, I have a question for you. Please answer if you've ever done this. Have you ever tried to get even with somebody? Yeah, okay. More people admitted that than in the first service. In the first service, it was like one person. Um, yeah, I think, I think many of us, uh, judging by those who, of you who had said this and you, those of you who had said, <laughs> will admit that we've at some point in the past, we've tried to get even. So let me ask you this. It seems like most of us understand what I'm saying when I say get even. So somebody help me out. What does it mean to get even with somebody? An eye for an eye, yeah. Wait, did you read ahead? Did you know that's where we're going today? You're just, yeah, awesome, excellent. Well, you're a teacher. I'm glad that you're, yeah, you're good at definitions. Um, yeah, an eye for an eye. Anybody else? What does getting even mean? What does it look like? Vengeance. Looks like vengeance? Sure. Yeah, and, and why do you need vengeance? It's because somebody did something to you, and now you're going to get even, right? I was up here just enjoying my life, and you knocked me down a couple pegs, and guess what? I'm going to knock you down a couple pegs, and then we'll be even, right? Justice will be done. And uh, let me ask you this. Does getting even ever actually resolve the situation? Did you ever leave uh, a time when you, were, when you were trying to get even with somebody, just being like, well, that was just great. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I feel so good, and they feel so good, and, and we've been reconciled, and everything is fine now. It's, I mean, you laugh because it's, that's not the way it ever works, is it? Um, 
just an, an illustration that comes to my mind um, from my childhood is, you know, let's, let's just say that uh, me and my brother are getting into it, and, you know, I, I, he's mad at me and does something. He just breaks a, a $20 video game that I have, and I'm just, I lose. I'm just like, no, how, did, how dare you break the $20 game? So what am I going to do to get even? I'm going to break a game of his, right? So I'm going to go to his room and grab his video game, smash it over my knee or whatever. But the game I broke was worth $50, and the game he broke was worth $20. Well, guess what? Injustice is still happening because I didn't get even, did I? I got more than even, right? And that's usually what happens when we try to get even. We actually try to extract. We talked about this with sinful anger a couple weeks ago. We often try to extract more out of the other person in our anger than they actually deserve to pay. So I go, and I break a $50 video game of his, and does that solve the situation? No. No, what is he going to do? Well, I just, I just committed an injustice against him. So he's going to go, and he's going to go get a $70 game um, of mine. And he's going to shatter that thing. And it's just going to keep going and going and going until we wear each other out. And at the end of the day, the, the issue is not solved, and nobody feels good about anything that happened. That's really what happens when you get even. It never really, you never really get even, because I would argue the reason that we try to get even is not really because we want justice, it's because we want emotional satisfaction. I want to feel, I want to make you feel the way you made me feel when you did that thing, when you said that thing. And I'm going to tell you today, I'm not going to preach on this, I'm just going to throw this nugget out and let you chew on it. Um, justice and emotional satisfaction are not the same thing. Some justice is not emotionally satisfying, and some things that are emotionally satisfying are not necessarily justice. They are not always the same thing. And so sometimes when we get wronged, we say, well, I want to be satisfied that I've taught you a lesson and that you feel as rotten as I feel. And usually in doing that, we actually go overboard and actually do worse than the person originally did to us. But we do it in the spirit of getting even. God knew way back, before he even called his people Israel, God knew that when he was building his kingdom, it was going to be filled with broken people. And when he laid out the law, and he showed through the law, this is what a citizen of the kingdom looks like and acts like. And this is the perfect righteousness that you have to have if you want to be right with me. And he lays this all out, and he says, be like me, be holy as I am holy. He recognizes as he's dealing with sinful people, and so he adds some guidance into the law to help us when we sin against each other and to guide us in how to resolve those issues. He, he says this law that we call, or the, the Romans called lex talionis. It's the law of retaliation. Um, and that's, it, that actually sounds a lot more vengeful, but that's not the biblical term. We just call it that. Here's the law that you see in the Bible that is supposed to direct us when somebody harms us, when somebody damages us, when somebody takes something from us. How are we supposed to respond? How does justice respond? So here's the guidance he gives. You see this specifically mentioned in Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19, and Leviticus 24. I'm going to teach from Leviticus 24 right now because I know you love Leviticus so much. It is really good. You learn a whole lot about God in Leviticus. Here's Leviticus chapter 4, verses 17, 18, and 19. And you'll see this law here. Anyone who takes another person's life must be put to death. In other words, a life for a life. Anyone who kills another person's animal must pay for it in full. 
a live animal for the animal that was killed. So an animal for an animal. Anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. What anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. So the principle here is that the punishment ought to fit the crime. Does that make sense? The offense should be paid back according to the crime that was committed. So if I go and kill your animal, you can't go kill me for it. That's not even. Um, but by the same token, if you kill my brother, you can't just be like, well, here's a goat. Are we, are we squaresies now? That's not how it works. A life for a life, an animal for an animal, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? The punishment should fit the crime. That's generally, that's, that's the rule here. Now, two things you need to know about this law. The reason God gives this law in the first place, because if you're really thinking, well, if God is perfect, and we're supposed to be perfect as he is, as he is perfect, then why in the world is God including how to deal with, with sin when I harm a brother? Because really, I should not be harming my brother, if I'm truly following God's law, right? Right? Thank you. Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure you're still with me. So why does God even include this in the first place? Well, if you think back to last week, Pastor Phil taught a lesson on divorce. And he said, he, he, he taught from Jesus' perspective and Jesus' teaching on the law in Matthew chapter 19 that says, divorce is not God's original plan. What does Jesus say? He says, God permitted this as a concession to man's hard heart. So in, in essence, divorce is not God's perfect plan. He didn't put a law in there because he thought, wow, here's a great idea. Let's put this in there. But God recognizes his kingdom at that point in time and in this point in time is still made up of people who are sinful and who have hard hearts. And that hard-heartedness can cause harm to an innocent party. Therefore, in certain specific excuse me, situations, God permits divorce not because he wants it and not because it's a part of his perfect plan, but because God desires to protect innocent parties from, her, from further harm due to the hard-heartedness of their spouse. It's a similar principle here with why God institutes these laws. Um, that's not my kid, Okay. <laughs> But yes, there's a note for parents to check your little your, your, your note there and see if you need to go say hi to your kid. I probably shouldn't have called that out, but it's, all, it's always you when I'm teaching. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it's, my, it's usually my kid. We go back and forth. So anyway, um, so God institutes these law to say, look, I, I recognize I'm dealing with people with sinful, hard hearts, and I need to put some guidance in here. So one of the reasons he gives this law is to help curb evil because of man's sinful heart. So this, uh, and here's the other thing. If I'm, if I'm a, a, an ancient Jew, which I am not, but if I was, and I've come out of hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, and I see how justice is done in Egypt and, and the violence and stuff that, that goes with that, I might think to myself when, you know, when my buddy Harry does me wrong, I'm going to go get him. And I've, you know, I've seen people kill for lesser things, so I'm going to go kill Harry. Well, if I know that my life is forfeit, if I take the life of another, <laughs> chances are I'm, I'm going to be less inclined to go murder Harry, right? 
So part of this is to help curb the evil in man's heart. There's a second reason, though. Functioning correctly, as God intended, these laws would bring justice and terminate the need for personal vendettas. Because here's the context in which you find these laws. Every one of these sections I mentioned, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, all of them have, um, all of them have arbiters, impartial judges in place to help bring justice in those situations. You see that in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 19. Um, and in Leviticus 24, it's interesting because there is no arbiter specifically mentioned but it's because the situation immediately preceding God's giving of the law in Leviticus 24 has Moses himself acting as arbiter. So in all three of these situations where you see an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's not, well, Harry killed my goat and I'm going to go get him. It's not, I get to figure out what justice is. Because my sinful heart might be like, well, Harry, you killed my goat. That goat was worth five million bucks, pal. <laughs> Pay up. And Harry's like, dude... That goat was 20 cents. I saw you got it last week. And now we're still, there's no justice. There's still tension there. So what do you do? You bring it to the local judges. And they will fact find and figure out, okay, what was actually done? What really happened? What was the actual injury? And then we will levy a judgment against the opposing party in order to make that right. And it will either look like replacing what was lost or in the case of somebody taking a life, their life is forfeit. So the reason arbiters are supposed to be involved is because if, if I lost a goat and now Harry has bought me another goat, guess what? I have now been restored. I have what was taken from me and I have no further cause to try and go after my brother for his sin against me. Reconciliation can happen because justice can happen. So functioning properly, these laws bring justice and eliminate the need for me to go beyond justice and try to get even with my brother. Here's the problem. Can you see how if you take this law and lift it out of its Old Testament context and you just look at you know, what was done to you must be done to the other person. Can you see how somebody with a sinful heart could warp that as justification for revenge? Could you see that? I could. Definitely could. Um, and in fact, that is the, that's the pop theology understanding of this law that is circulating at the time of Jesus. People aren't living by the law of love, which is the true law of the kingdom. And what they're doing is they're saying, well, this law permits me to just go after and get even with my brother when they harm me. It's in the Bible. It says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So if my buddy puts my eye out, I'm going to go get my ice pick. We're going to go have a good old time. Like, that's what, that's what people are thinking. They've lifted it away from the original context. And they're coming up with something that is not truly what a citizen of the kingdom would do. And in fact, it's interesting, if you look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God actually explicitly forbids revenge. He says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the law has specifically taken revenge off the table. But here people are saying, well, this law actually 
lets me be vindictive. It lets me get revenge all by myself on somebody else. And Jesus says, you've heard this law taught and you've understood it that way. That is not the way. That is not what that law says. It's not what it means. Let me show you what a citizen of the kingdom truly does and how they think and they act when they are done an injustice. And that's what he teaches that we're going to cover today. So let me read to you Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, and then we'll break it down. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. There is a lot to digest here. And these are, I think, culturally, these are some of the most difficult and offensive verses in the Bible. When somebody does me wrong, how dare I, an American, turn my cheek, right? How dare Jesus say, turn the other cheek to somebody who does me wrong? And I think a lot of times what we do when we get to a difficult teaching of the Bible is we often say, well, Jesus can't possibly be saying what it seems like he's saying. But oh well, la di da di da da and then we go on our merry way without actually digging into what it is Jesus says. And we have to resist the urge to do that. Today we have to, we have to stare this teaching right in the face. We have to let this teaching stare us right in the face. We have to resist the urge to try and downplay or quickly interpret it, interpret these transformative words of Jesus. Remember. Jesus is not making new laws here. The Old Testament law is perfect. He's showing what somebody who, a true citizen of the kingdom, and on this side of the cross we know a true citizen of the kingdom who has entered through the narrow gate of Jesus Christ, who has believed in Jesus, repented of our sins, and received the Holy Spirit, fused together with our spirit, a citizen of the kingdom. That kind of citizen will gradually grow to look more like Jesus. And what Jesus is saying in these, in these difficult verses is, the more you become like me, the more you will start to look like this. So part of surrendering to that Spirit's work in our hearts is clearly hearing the words of Jesus and allowing them to transform the way we think, allowing them to renew our minds so that we have the mind of Christ 
so that our heart becomes molded more in the image of Jesus' heart. And so we begin to think, act, and have attitudes like a true citizen of the kingdom, which, as Jesus points to in this section, is himself. So let's dig in here. Start with verse 38. You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We've already talked about that. The, the, the interpretation of that original law that he's going after completely misses the spirit of the law, misses the point entirely. So what does Jesus say? Instead of getting even, what does he say? Don't resist an evil person. We're already like, mm, like I can feel some of you backing away from me. Um, don't resist an evil person. Well, well, Pastor James, what if dot, dot, dot? Well, hang on. Jesus is going to give us some examples. He's going to show us how a true citizen of the kingdom does not resist an evil person. How they don't fight back when someone is fighting against them. First example. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. All right. Greek word study time. Uh, the word for slap, it means, uh, it's a painful insult, which, I mean, if you get slapped on the cheek, it's pretty much like you would expect. You know, I think about those old medieval movies where somebody takes off a glove and they're like, a duel, Psh! they smack them across the face. Um, have you ever been slapped in the face before? Don't put your hands up. <laughs> but if you have, is it painful? Yeah. Um, so, because I, I, some sermons I listened to on this were like, well, this is a verbal thing. I'm like, well, it is an insult, Absolutely. This is totally a word for an insult, but there is physical pain involved, so I can't really back away from that. So Jesus specifically says, if somebody painfully insults you, offer the other cheek. Now, if I'm being honest, uh, if somebody slaps me back, or if somebody slaps you back, um, maybe our initial reaction isn't to just offer the other cheek, it's usually to slap them back or to slap them back a little harder, right? Really get them. And I think if, if you're applying the incorrect interpretation of this law that Jesus is going after here, what you would say is, well, somebody slap me on the right cheek. The law now obligates me to get revenge and slap them right back or do something worse in order to get even. So I feel like justice has been done, right? But Jesus says that's not what a citizen of the kingdom does. A citizen of the kingdom responds differently. Before I get to that point, it's not only important to look at what Jesus is saying here, but it's important to look at what he's not saying. He says, if someone slaps you, offer the other cheek. He does not say, if someone's beating you down in a back alley, lie down and take it. Nor does he say, though, if someone is bringing you painful physical insult, you should just get right out. That's not what he says either. Jesus says, if someone does you insult, offer the other cheek. What does that mean? That means you stay present. I can't offer my other cheek if I'm running away. Somebody insults me, stay present, don't return the insult and be willing to endure further insult. He doesn't say if you get slapped, make the person slap you on the other cheek. He just says, offer the other cheek. You may get slapped. You may not get slapped. 
What's the point? Be willing to endure. Here's the first point. When insulted, a citizen of the kingdom is willing to endure further insult. I'm not going to tell you the reason behind this yet, because Jesus doesn't. Jesus says one sentence that I just spent, you know, five minutes teaching on with lots more sentences, and then he moves right on to the next shocking and offensive thing. So I'm just going to let that sit. I'm not going to tell you why yet. We'll get there. I will tell you this, however, before moving on to the next one. Not responding with further insult and sitting there and being willing to endure it when insulted is an example of grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's a blessing that you do not deserve. And so what I think often my enemy has earned when they insult me, well, they've earned an insult right back. But how does Jesus say a citizen of the kingdom responds here? He says, grace says, I will treat you with more favor than you have earned. You might have earned a slap back, or at the very least, you might have earned me walking away from you, but I'm going to treat you better. I'm going to give you unmerited favor and treat you in a way you haven't earned. I will continue to be present with you. I will maintain relationship despite the threat of further insult. So this is an example of grace. Let's move to the next one. Verse 40, if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Now, in America, we have lawsuits for everything. We have lawsuits for, you know, somebody literally burned down my house, which I would probably call a legitimate lawsuit. We also have things like I spilled hot coffee on myself or somebody called me a name and I'm offended. We, we have lawsuits for absolutely everything. So it, it's tempting to look at this and be like, well, if I'm sued in court and my shirt is taken from me, is this, a, is this a just lawsuit? Did I do something to deserve this? Or is this a false accusation? And as far as I can tell, the language that Jesus uses here doesn't, doesn't tell us either way. The point isn't whether we've been falsely accused or justly accused. The point is we've been accused and the court has sided with our accuser. And the law has decided that I now owe my shirt to this person. That's the point. And if you're applying the incorrect interpretation of the law here, you might naturally say, okay, I, I have to pay what I owe, right? So I grudgingly just like rip my shirt off, like throw it in their face or whatever. Take it, get out of here, right? But then you're going to say, that's it. Our business is concluded. You sued me. You got what you deserve, says the law. I'm out. See ya. No reconciliation. Just, just walk away. But Jesus says a citizen of the kingdom responds differently. He says, if you get sued and you owe that person your shirt, give them your coat too. Give them something that is more valuable than the thing they're taking. Again, it's important to know what Jesus is not saying. Jesus doesn't say if somebody takes your shirt, lay it out and let them take your coat. He says, give it. In other words, I'm maintaining my agency and I am making a decision voluntarily to make a gift of something that is more valuable than the thing that this person is taking and I'm going to gift wrap it and I'm going to give it to them. And in that way, I'm going to extend grace, you see. What have they earned? What do they deserve? Well, the court says they deserve my shirt. So giving them my shirt is simply fulfilling my obligation to the law. Anything beyond that is grace. So grace says, and a citizen of the kingdom says, 
I may owe you my shirt, but I'm going to make the decision to go further and give you something that you don't deserve. And the thing I'm giving you is even more valuable than what you're taking from me. Here's the point. When something is owed, a citizen of the kingdom is willing to give more than what is owed. We're voluntarily willing to decide, not just to suffer further insult, but to give more than what is owed. Verse 41, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Can you guess a phrase that we get from this? Go the extra mile. Yeah, this is where this comes from. Uh, and, and we've kind of adjusted that phrase uh, and made it really, really weak, like just do a little bit extra. Give 110%, which is not possible. Um, you know, just... Do a little bit more. Go the extra mile. And that really is, I mean, it's an oversimplification at best of what Jesus is talking about here. Let me, let me tell you why this phrase, I think, would be the most offensive thing that Jesus has said thus far to this crowd that's listening. Remember, he's teaching first century Jewish people who at this point in history have been subject to the oppressive thumb of imperial Rome for hundreds of years. The Romans are the enemies of the Jewish people. They took land that was not theirs. They conquered God's people. They forced extra taxes on them and all sorts of stuff. And if you're a first century Jew, you did not want to be in the same room with a Roman. That's why tax collectors and government officials had such a bad rep because they were seen as turning against their fellow people and basically siding with Rome. That's why people hated tax collectors so much. So Rome is the enemy. And they have held us, they've held us under, our, under their thumb. And I have justified hatred for what they've done to me and my people, says the first century Jew. Now, a Roman soldier was allowed by law to demand that a citizen carry their gear for up to one Roman mile. That's 1,000 paces. So at any point, if I'm a soldier, I can see a citizen and just be like, hey, bud, come here. Shield, spear, you know, carry my gear for me for one mile. Let's go. I'm fighting wars for you, and I'm keeping the home front safe, so you're going to carry my stuff for the next mile. And a Jew put in that position would be legally obligated to fulfill that duty, despite the fact that it chafed, and despite the fact that that meant by law, they were obligated to help somebody that they viewed as their enemy. And a sense, in a sense, I'm helping somebody due to some other, you know, I'm helping them go to war so they can do to some other culture and some other people what they've done to me. Can you understand how much that would hurt to have to fulfill that kind of obligation? And what you would do, I would imagine... You're counting the paces. It's a thousand paces is one Roman mile. So you're counting it as you're walking it out. One, two, three, four, etc. And you get to the thousandth pace and you stop. Gear gets dropped in the ground or you toss it back to the soldier and you're just like, that's it. You're not getting another step from me. I have fulfilled my obligation. Peace out. I'm done. And you walk back home. Jesus says, if you're in that position, and you fulfill your legal obligation to that soldier, you carry that gear one mile, a citizen of the kingdom will carry it another mile. 
will carry it for two instead of one. A citizen of the kingdom responds differently than you might think. I'm going to treat them better than they legally deserve. The law requires the first mile, but grace informs the second. They deserve one mile, says the law. Whether I disagree with it or not, they deserve it. But I'm going to give them more. Can you imagine what that would do to the soldier that is walking with that person? When they get to that thousandth pace and they're like, well, I guess it's time to start you know, carrying my gear again. And they just keep walking with you and maintaining a relationship. And they're like, well, it's been 10 extra paces. Maybe they weren't counting. You know, maybe they forgot that it's a thousand. Should I say something or should I just keep walking? And they go all the way up to at least two and maybe even beyond. Can you imagine what that would do to that soldier in the moment? Have you ever been treated in a way better than you deserve? Anybody? Yeah. Did that do something in your mind when that happened? Like, I know I don't deserve the kind of treatment that this person is giving me, this good treatment, this treatment that's better, this gracious treatment. Can you, like it does something in your mind. At the very least, it's blatantly obvious, isn't it? I'm being treated better than I deserve. That does something at the, at the bare minimum in your mind, if not in your heart yet. But it often does something in your heart too. It kind of, it's almost self-convicting. Like, I know I did this person dirty and they are treating me far better than I deserve to be treated. It's an example of everything Jesus has been talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. It, and, and ultimately, for our vocabulary here at Echo, it's an example of Christ-likeness. I am going to walk another mile with this soldier, and in a sense, they are a captive audience for me. I'm going to keep walking. I'm going to maintain my presence. I'm going to maintain my relationship with them. And as we walk together, I'm going to show them a very visible example of grace by treating them better than they deserve. Next point is when something is demanded, citizen of the kingdom is willing to go further than that demand requires. Jesus finishes this section by saying, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. That's verse 42. Again, simply respond with grace. If somebody is asking you for money, they don't have the leverage to demand that money. Otherwise, they wouldn't be asking. They would have been like, hey, dude, you owe me 20 bucks. Give me 20 bucks. Somebody's coming and asking for it. They have done nothing to earn it. In other words, they are asking for grace. What does Jesus say? Give it. Same thing. Don't turn away from those who want to borrow. They have no right to ask to borrow your money. But don't turn them away. Extend grace. Give them more than they deserve. All of these four images are examples, they are pictures of grace. A citizen of the kingdom, a Christian, doesn't respond to the person who insults them in kind. They treat them better than they deserve. They extend grace. When someone takes your shirt, you give them your coat. They legally deserve your shirt, so you make a gift out of your coat. You extend grace. When your enemy exercises their legal right to demand something for you, you go further than the obligation requires. You are willing to voluntarily endure further difficulty to treat your enemy better than you think they deserve. You extend grace. 
and when someone has no leverage at all to ask for anything, and they come to you and ask for help, give it to them. They're not capable of earning your favor. Give it to them anyway. Extend grace. And these four images roll right into loving your enemy. Verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The NLT translation that we're using today is very helpful here. Uh, You see the second line on the screen there puts quotes around love your neighbor. It does not put quotes around hate your enemy. This is an indication to us, again, that Jesus is not going after the Old Testament law. Now, love your neighbor is in the Old Testament law. I already quoted it today. Leviticus 19.18. Don't carry a grudge or harbor revenge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, Leviticus 19.18. So love your neighbor is in the law. Hate your enemy is not. Now, are there people that hate their enemies in the Old Testament? Yeah, but not because God commanded it. Nowhere in the Old Testament law does God ever say, hate your enemy. And yet, you have this pop theology that says, well, all I need to do is love my neighbor, and I'm going to treat my enemy the way they deserve to be treated. I'm going to treat them with hatred because they've earned it, and I can do both of those things and be right with God. Jesus says no. A citizen of the kingdom doesn't hate their enemy. What does he say? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. While they are persecuting you, pray for that person. The word for love here, Greeks have lots of words for love. Um, I thought there was five, and then every time I look up this, they found like another one. So depending on who you ask, there's four to eight different Greek words for love. Agape is the word here. Agape, your enemies. Here's what that means. Agape is a love where the lover is willing to give so much to the one they love that it costs them dearly. It is a self-sacrificing love. To give until it is painful and then to keep on giving. And that is the kind of love that Jesus says to love your enemies with. To love your enemy so deeply that it costs you. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for their blessing. You like, you know, how do you pray for those who persecute you? Like, do you pray like, Lord, get them. Bring the smite, you know. No, you don't pray for that. How do you pray for them? If you're loving your enemy and you're praying a self-sacrificial prayer, God, how can I bless this person? How can I leverage what you have given me to show this person love, to show my enemy love and to treat them with grace? How can I pray for them, to pray for them to receive every good thing that you have for them? To pray that they know you and that they come to love you like I love you. To intercede on my enemy's behalf for God's blessings in their life as they persecute me, as they insult me, as they do me harm. To pray for my enemies even while I am being persecuted. That is difficult, and let me tell you, and you know this, it is not natural. So how on earth do we get to the point where we can truly love our enemy. If you can't do it in the natural, 
The only other option you have is the supernatural. This side of the cross we know. When you believe in Jesus, when you repent of your sins, when you come into God's kingdom through Jesus, the Holy Spirit gets fused with you. And now you have heavenly DNA intermingled in your spirit. And that Holy Spirit produces growth that looks like Christ. How do you love your enemy? You let the Holy Spirit produce that love in your heart. Here's, here's how this works. Um, you know, oh, actually, final note here. Um, a citizen of the kingdom loves their enemies, not just their neighbors. Because Jesus says, what good is it if you just love the people that, that already love you? Tax collectors do that. What good is it if you're kind to the people who are kind to you or to your friends? Pagans do that. People who don't even have a relationship with the Father are nice to people who are nice to them. Being nice to your neighbors is good. He's, not, he's certainly not saying, you know, be a jerk to your neighbors. He's not saying do any less, but he's saying just being nice to your neighbors and people who love you, anybody can do that. That doesn't show that you have my heart. What truly reveals that you have my heart is that you have a self-sacrificing love and willingness in your heart to love your enemy. And, you know, what does that prove? What does it prove if you have that kind of love? Well, Jesus says in verse 45, in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. You show that you are a true child of the kingdom and you have a relationship with the Father and that you're a son of the Father when you do what he does. Let me give you an example. My son, Ali, is 15 months old. And he recently, a couple weeks ago, started doing this thing where he will go and he'll take a baby doll and he'll, he'll cradle it, like with literal cradle arms, right, Chelsea? She's nodding in case you didn't say, um, I'm telling the truth. He'll, he'll cradle the little baby doll like this. And then he'll go, oh, baby. And he'll take his little hand and he'll pet the little baby hair and stuff. He did this the other day with, a, uh, with one of those collapsible hand fans, you know, like the ones that you're like, oh, charmed, I'm sure. <laughs> like one of those. It was folded up, and he, pick, and he picked it up like a baby doll, and he just cradled it, oh, baby, and he patted where the head would be if it was a baby and not a fan. Um, and it's so cute. But, like, where in the world does this kid get this stuff? Well, he gets it from his father. He gets it from his mother because that's what we do with him. Um, we couldn't do that with Esther. If you held her horizontal, it was like, I mean, she would scream bloody murder. So don't hold the gal horizontally, but like, Ollie just loves it. And he's always, he's always enjoyed a good cradle. We call it a good hoed. He's always enjoyed that. And when he was upset, we would pick him up, we would go, oh, baby. And we would hold him and we'd, you know, brush his little hair. And that stuck in his mind to the point where now naturally, with no instruction from me or mom, he just naturally does it. He imitates what he's seen his father and his mother do. He, in a sense, he proves that he is our child because he's imitating his father and his mother. Jesus says something really similar in John chapter 5. He says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus here is saying, you want proof that I am God's Son? Just look at what I'm doing. A Son of the Father imitates the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because I'm doing 
his will. I'm acting like him. Extending grace, loving people who have positioned themselves as his enemies is what God does. And when we start to find ourselves doing the exact same thing, that proves that you are a child of the Father, that you're a citizen of the kingdom. When you start finding love in your heart for people that you have a really hard time loving, for people who have, who have attacked you, who have gone against you and your family, when you start to find love in your heart and you start asking really weird questions like, how can I take what God has given me to bless my enemy? That is proof that God's spirit has taken up residence in you and that you are a child of the kingdom. And as you act on those thoughts and extend grace, you provide a visible picture for even your enemy of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We prove that we're sons of the Father, citizens of the kingdom of heaven through our love and grace, not just toward our neighbors, but towards our enemies, towards those who hate us. What proves a tra- that's what proves a transformed heart. Just loving people that love you, it doesn't prove that. Anybody can do that. You don't need a relationship with God to like people that like you. But when you're willing to love somebody so deeply that it costs you, even as they reject your love and persecute you, that is loving your enemies. That is true agape, self-sacrificing love. So how do we sum up everything that I've taught so far today? I'll give you two statements, and then I'll teach them together. Citizens of the kingdom are willing to, number one, voluntarily endure the effects of other sin so that we can be an example of and point an arrow to our king. Voluntarily endure the effects of other sin. This is what it looks like to be willing to endure further insult, to maintain presence and relationship with the other person even as they go after you, to endure the effect of their sin, as painful and embarrassing, as insulting as it is, I'm going to endure that. Why? Because Jesus endured insult for me. And I am becoming more and more like him. And I'm going to point through my actions, I'm going to point an arrow right to my king. Here's the second one. It goes right with the first one. Citizens of the kingdom are willing to voluntarily lay down our rights in an effort to advance God's kingdom and to benefit others, especially our enemies. I may believe I have the right to get revenge. I may have a legal right to walk away from a situation. But a citizen of the kingdom has this peculiar willingness in their hearts that comes from the Holy Spirit to desire to lay down our own rights so that a gospel seed can be planted in the heart of somebody who's actively doing us harm or so a gospel seed can be watered and to give that person the chance to see in us an example of Jesus Christ. The disciple says, for the benefit of my enemy, I will remain present. I will treat them better than they deserve I will extend grace even if they treat me worse than I deserve. I will extend grace. Why? Because my Lord extended grace for me. The perfect 
example of this kind of love is found in the very person whose words we're reading and teaching today. It's found in Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't just answer the question, why should we live like this? He answers even the question, how on earth is it possible to live like this? How do you have this kind of love and how can you extend this kind of grace to somebody who's going after you? Well, Jesus did it for us. We, citizens of the kingdom, endure insult from others. Why? Because Christ endured insult for us. Interestingly enough, Remember we talked about that word slap, painful physical insult in verse 39. It's used two times in the entire Bible. First time it's used is right here, Matthew chapter 5. You want to know the only other time it's used in the Bible? It is when Jesus is enduring physical insult, when he is being slapped and beaten by the Sanhedrin during one of his, one of those sham trials. He says, a citizen of the kingdom is willing to endure physical insult, and then he endures the very physical insult that he's talking about here. So we can endure insult from others because Christ endured insult for us. We, citizens of the kingdom, graciously give more than is owed to others because Christ gave more than he owed for us. We go beyond what is demanded by others because Christ went beyond what was demanded for us. The law did not demand that Jesus die because Jesus had no sin. He owed no penalty. His life was not forfeit, right? If it's a life for a life and Jesus gives his life, well, he didn't owe it. He owed nobody his life. Why do you think Jesus was forced into so many fake trials? Because at every single one, they couldn't find him guilty of anything. He was not guilty. He didn't deserve it. He even says in John chapter 10, he says, nobody takes my life from me. No one can demand this from me. What does he say? I give it, I lay it down of my own accord. Nobody could take his life, but he gave it willingly. And citizens of that kingdom who are being made more into the image of Christ give more than is owed and go farther beyond what is demanded because Jesus went beyond what was demanded for us. We love our enemies because Christ loved us and died for us while we had positioned ourselves as his enemies. One of the truths at the heart of the gospel is that we have all decided to live life our own way. And you know what that means? That means saying, God, I reject your rule over me. I am God. I will do as I please. I will define myself however I want. I will define everybody else as I want to define them. Whether I define them as friend or enemy, I will do as I please, as I see fit, because I am God. This is sin, the pride to think and act as if we are wiser and even more glorious than our creator. We kick him off the throne and we say, I am God and I will do as I please. And in doing so, we positioned ourselves as enemies against God. God did not position himself as an enemy. He didn't say, well, you did this, now I'm going to come get you. We said, you are my enemy and I reject your rule. Yet, Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies and living lives completely contrary to his kingdom and living lives in direct rejection of his good and pleasing and perfect will, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Worship team, you can come. What kind of an impact can a Christ-like and gracious response to our enemies have? I have an example that came to mind in the first service. We taught this on Easter, or uh, Good Friday, actually. I think about the Roman centurion who's overseeing Jesus' execution in Luke chapter 23. This is the man who is in charge of killing Christ. He's been put in charge of it, and he's supposed to get it done, and he does. But he sees Jesus Christ on the cross. He sees this example of a man who is being unjustly put to death for things he never did. He sees this example, and Jesus isn't up there spitting curses at the people as they put him to death. He's not spitting curses at the centurion who is responsible for murdering him. What does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. He doesn't treat his, his own murderers like they deserve to be treated. He extends grace. And he says, Father, forgive them. And that does something in that centurion's heart. It changes something in him. He responds and says, surely this man was innocent. And then what does it say in Luke 23? He went and worshiped God. Jesus, while he was hanging on that cross, extending grace, loving his enemies as they put him to death with every fiber of his being, showed this beautiful example of the Father's love for us. And witnessing that love changed the life and eternity of the very man who was responsible for putting him to death. That's the kind of example that we have the opportunity to provide to others as we love and extend grace, especially when it's not deserved. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you have done so much for us. You endured insult. You endured beatings. Our sin was placed on your shoulders and you didn't deserve a single bit of it. But you did it because you loved us. And because it was the only way for us to have a relationship with you. Sin was our problem. You didn't start it. We did. And yet your love for us says, I'm going to finish this. I will break the power of sin and death so that my children can come back to me. And so family relationship can be restored. Jesus, will you help grow that love, that kind of self-sacrificing love where we would say, I am willing to endure insult, I'm willing to endure pain, I'm willing to give to my enemies even as they persecute me. Would you help to grow that kind of love in our hearts through your Holy Spirit? Because that's the very same love you've had for us. Help us to model what it truly means to love one another the way that you have loved us. 
expand our willingness to give more than what we think is owed or deserved. Help us to truly love self-sacrificially, even when it's painful. Give us your wisdom to know which which situations we need to endure and some situations where it may be wise for us to distance ourselves for a time. Because we know you also did that sometimes. We need your wisdom to know and we need your strength to endure and to stand and maintain relationship even as people are coming against us. Because in that we provide an example of you. So help us. Holy Spirit, I pray. And there may be those of us who are here this morning who have heard this good news about Jesus, that that even though we were sinners, Jesus came and died for us. He took the penalty on himself that was meant for us, and in doing so, we can be made right with God. We can become true citizens of his kingdom. And we can have his Holy Spirit come and live in us and make us inseparable with him. And you've heard that message and you recognize in your heart that you're not right with God, but you're not happy about that. And you're saying, I want to be made right with God. Is there a way? Yes, there is a way. Through Jesus and only through Jesus. How do you receive the grace that he is already extending to you today? Let me tell you. You need to repent and you need to believe. Repenting means to truly acknowledge that I am a sinner, to admit that you've done things your own way and that you've rejected God. To be so disgusted with your sin that it leads you to turn from it and to turn towards the righteousness of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. To repent, to turn away from sin and to turn toward Jesus. And what do you need to believe You need to believe that Jesus can save you. That though he went to the cross and died, that he didn't stay dead, but that he rose again. And because he's alive, and because he paid that price for your sin, he can save you. And you need to believe that if you ask him to save you, he will. He will not turn anyone away who comes to him and wishes to receive that gift of grace. And if today you're repenting of sin and you're believing in all your heart that Jesus can save you and that he will save you, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer that you can pray in your heart where you can simply receive that gift. And it's as simple as saying, Jesus, save me. I need to be saved. I believe you can save me because you took the penalty for my sin when you died on the cross. And today I'm asking you, Jesus, please save me. Please restore my relationship with you and with your Father. Please give me your Holy Spirit to give me the strength to continue to turn from my sin and to act like you. Please save me And if you're praying that prayer right now, then Jesus is saving you. He's making you right with him and he's taking the payment that he paid through his death on the the cross and he's applying it to your account 
and now you are saved. And his spirit is living inside you and giving you strength and giving you hope and peace and a joy that you may ne- that you've never felt before. And if you're feeling that right now, that is simply proof that you are saved and you've been made right with God. And I want to celebrate that with anyone who made that decision today. So I'm going to ask you to do something. This is not a requirement to be saved. But if you, may, if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, or maybe you prayed that prayer a long time ago, but you've been walking away from the Lord and you've been rejecting his call on your life, but today you said, I'm turning back around and I'm turning towards Jesus and I want to be made right with him again. If either of those things represents a prayer you prayed today, I would love to know that you prayed that prayer. And a simple way you can let me know is I'm going to count to three and on, when I reach three, you can simply lift your hand up, make eye contact with me and put your hand right back down. It's not required to be saved. It just lets me know that you made that decision today gives me the opportunity to, to celebrate and congratulate you and uh, to also give you a Bible if you don't have one on your way out to help you in your walk with Christ. So if you're willing to do that, I would be honored to celebrate this moment with you. So if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to count to three. Just lift up your hand, make eye contact with me, and you can put your hand right back down. One, two, three. Is anyone made right with God today? Amen. Jesus, help us. Help us to grow to be more like you. To love those the way you love them. To truly have our Father's heart and to truly exemplify our big brother Jesus in all that we think and all that we do and the way that we live and the way that we love. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.